Are you a high-performing real estate investor who's looking to further elevate your performance? If so, download our free guide, Raising the Bar, Five Steps to Elevate Your Habits by joining our insider network at elevatepod.com. This guide created by yours truly has the power to put your transformation on autopilot and exponentially change your trajectory. Go get your free copy now at elevatepod.com. Welcome to Elevate, the masterclass where we dissect the elements of exceptional achievement and lifestyle design with a focus on personal growth and real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Tyler Chesser. Elevate Nation, welcome back. This is Tyler Chester. I'm so thankful to have you here. And I am blessed and grateful to be sitting with my friend, Chad Griffiths today. You are going to learn so much about industrial real estate investing. You're going to learn so much about the nuances of this asset class in the commercial real estate industry, how you can use this knowledge to amplify your own financial capacity, and how you can really think through what's happening in your own local market and how does this impact your investment decisions beyond that you're going to learn so much about how to apply continual learning into your growth as a real estate investor your growth as a parent your growth as a professional your growth as a service provider and all of the dynamic capacities in which is you know important to you in your own life so i just think that this conversation is so valuable. There's so much to be said about this. And Chad is a phenomenal friend of mine, really, who I've gotten to know just recently. And I'll tell you that I think that you're going to find that we became even greater friends in this conversation. You're going to see why. And I think that uh, I just want to encourage you to really surround yourself with people like Chad, because he really took me to the next level today. And I know this conversation is going to help you take your own life and your own business, your own investing career to the next level. And I want to encourage you to buckle up because Elevate Podcast is all about mindset, mind expansion, and personal development for high-performing real estate investors. Today's no different. I'm your host, Tyler Chesser, and I'm a professional real estate investor and high-performance coach. It is my job to decode the stories, habits, and multifaceted expertise of world-class investors and other experts to help you elevate your performance and lifestyle. Are you ready to take it to another level? Because today is the day. Let's raise the bar. Before we dive in, if you don't mind, I'd love to remind you, uh, if you haven't done so already, make sure you subscribe or follow Elevate Podcasts and where, wherever you listen to podcasts or watch podcasts, because we're going to continue to bring world-class value, going to continue to bring phenomenal conversations such as today's episode. And I want to encourage you to give us a rating or review uh, and share this with a friend, because at the end of the day, the only way that we can continue to make an impact on other people is by, you know, having the gift of your own personal introduction, your own personal seal of approval. And each and every person listening today is important to, to us and important to me. So I just want to thank you for listening. And thank you for supporting. Uh, we're just here to serve. I'm here to serve and uh, hope that you're getting a ton of value from this. And that's the fee is just to share this with one friend, share this with one person that you care about uh, or someone that maybe you even just met and you want to learn more about. How can you add value to someone else? An easy way to do that is to share the link share a screenshot or share it on social media, share this episode with someone that you care about. That's the fee. And with all that said, I want to dive in. I want to introduce you to Chad Griffiths. Chad entered the commercial real estate industry in 2004 and has completed over 500 transactions with clients ranging from local companies to large institutional owners. Chad has been a top 15 producer with NAI Canada wide since 2013 and became a partner of the Edmonton office in 2015. 
As an active volunteer in the real estate and business community, Chad has previously served as chair and board member of the Real Estate Council of Alberta, board, of, board member of NAIOP Edmonton, president of South Edmonton Business Association, and member of the City of Edmonton Strathcona Junction Advisory Committee. Chad currently sits on the University of Alberta's Practice of Commercial Real Estate Course Advisory Committee. Chad has SIOR and CCIM designations, a diploma in urban land economics from UBC, and an MBA from Thompson Rivers University. So without further ado, I want to introduce you to the great Chad Griffiths. Chad Griffiths, my friend, how are you doing? I'm really good, Tyler. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I'm excited to be here. Man, welcome to Elevate. That's all I got to say, because um, you and I became friends recently uh, through your YouTube channel. And of course, we learned a lot. I learned a lot just part of that conversation, not only in terms of how you show up in, in your interviews and in your prowess on that platform, but also, of course, your expertise, your commitment to the real estate industry, commercial real estate industry in particular, and of course, your prowess in industrial real estate investing and brokerage, because man, you've got a depth of experience. So I'm excited about this conversation. I'm excited about hanging out with you because first of all, you're a great person and you're somebody that a lot of people can look up to. So with that said, man, um, I, I know I'm going long winded here on, on getting started on this conversation, but I wanted to let you know that I wanted to give a precursor to the audience, a bit of, of what I know about you. But while we dive into this conversation, one of the things that I like to do, and I'm sure you're aware of this, is I like to ask my guests, if you were to describe yourself in the way that the people closest to you would describe you, what would they say about you? I think the quickest thing that people would refer to me to is, is just a guy that's always talking. I just, uh, <laughs> I, I love to talk uh, about everything. It's uh, I, when I'm talking to someone that's interested in industrial real estate or commercial real estate, I've got so much I can say about it. Uh, and I just love talking to people. I love talking to people that are in the industry. I love just hearing people's story, even if they're not in any business capacity at all. So I, I'd say most people would just refer to me as a talker. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're in the right place here uh, because we're going to do a lot of talking today. So that's awesome. And, you know, I'd love to, I'd love to get an understanding of your upbringing a bit, if you don't mind, share with us a little bit about, you know, what was life like early on and, and so forth. And then we'll kind of get a sense of your story. Yeah. So I actually came from a very blue collared background uh, and family. My, my dad was a teacher. My mom was a nurse. Uh, there's nobody in our family that pursued business. Uh, so I was definitely the black sheep from that standpoint. Uh, I don't know when exactly it came. It was probably when I was in, in high school or perhaps going, going in, uh, considering going into college where I just saw the opportunity to, to be a service provider, to really figure out how business can work, both from a standpoint of getting to know people and taking something from scratch all the way to fruition. And just that whole process kind of excited me. Uh, so I, I enrolled in college uh, pretty much right after high school uh, and went, to, went into business school. Uh, funny enough, I was working at a restaurant part-time uh, as I was going through university. And they offered me a management position right after my first year. So I kind of looked at it. I was like, you know, I have the opportunity to get into uh, a business and learn it firsthand as a manager, or I can try and learn it from a theoretical standpoint in business school. And I decided to, to drop out of school and I ended up becoming a manager at the restaurant uh, that only lasted about a, a year or so. And I, I just didn't see myself doing that for, for too long. So I decided to, uh, to transition to being a part 
So now my parents are looking at me that uh, I dropped out of school. I took a management position, which they could kind of accept, but then I quit on that management position and I was a bartender. So needless to say, there's uh, a little bit of uneasement uh, uh, at family dinners and stuff. Uh, but I found my way into real estate at the time. I, I started investing in stuff. I had that entrepreneurial spirit still. I still wanted to to do things beyond just being a having one job. Uh, so I started investing in residential real estate with a couple of friends. We bought and sold a few houses. Didn't really make a lot of money, but it definitely fueled that that itch of of wanting to be in real estate. So in 2004, I, I got licensed as a residential agent. I uh, did that for a year and still didn't really see a long-term pathway on having to work every evening and every weekend. Uh, so I, I transitioned over to commercial real estate in 2005. So I guess that's that's 16 years ago already. Uh, and even though I had a, like a little bit of a choppy beginning figuring out what I've done, what I wanted to do. I've, I've been at that same company for the last 16 years now. So I found my calling, took a little bit of time. I'm sure my parents were wondering if I'd ever connect the dots on that, but I'm really glad that I did because it's, it's been an amazing 16 years. Man, we, and you said this when we first met is like, we have a lot in common and I'm realizing that even more now because um, just recognizing sort of the blue collar background of your family and maybe even feeling like the black sheep in some ways yeah. of being, becoming an entrepreneur and investor and a dynamic uh, individual doing, you know, several different things within real estate. I just can appreciate that in such a high, high degree and high regard. And thinking about like your journey, you mentioned obviously becoming a restaurant manager, dropping out of college, then becoming a bartender, and then finding your way into real estate, uh, investing in some residential properties with some friends. And that was kind of your step, your foot in the door, then getting licensed and transitioning from being a residential agent to a commercial agent. Talk to me first about the, how did you find yourself way yourself into real estate? And then talk to me about that transition from residential to commercial. Yeah, great question, Tyler. I, I think I, I almost accidentally stumbled into being a, a real estate agent in the first place, just because I had that desire to want to understand real estate better. We had bought and sold a couple of houses. I saw big potential in doing that. And it just seemed that I had a little bit of knowledge on it from buying and selling some houses. It just seemed a logical step would to be to help other people do it. And, and for that first year that I did uh, real estate as a residential agent, it was okay. Like I actually, I did reasonably well. And I, I think that year I sold 25 houses or something. So it was okay. I worked really hard. I just, I did everything I could to connect dots uh, in getting deals done. And, and it was it was good, but I just didn't have that desire of, of seeing myself wanting to do that every day uh, for the next 30 years of my career. And I just, the evenings and the weekends were starting to get to me. I didn't, I figured down the road as I have a family, I don't want to be away every, every evening and weekend. So I just, I, I, I saw the appeal of commercial real estate and, and I'm, I'm guessing that anybody that likes real estate is probably a fan of skyscrapers, right? I love seeing a skyline picture of, of like New York or uh, San Francisco. Like that always uh, got me excited when I was younger. So I thought, well, maybe commercial real estate would be, would be something that would scratch that itch. And I started asking around. Uh, my uncle uh, at the time was, was a prominent architect in town. And he set me up with a couple of interviews. 
And I set those interviews up actually back to back. So I had one at 10 o'clock and one at noon, roughly. And the first one that I had went so well that we ended up uh, talking for well over an hour and a half, uh, such that I, I ended up missing the other interview altogether, which I still to this day feel bad about. Uh, but I got, I got hired on the spot with that first company. And, and that's the one that I've been, th- been at to this day. Uh, so that was kind of the, the transition on how I went from got into real estate. Uh, Another interesting story is, so I I thought I'd be selling office buildings or doing leases and like these big skyscrapers. That's all I really knew about commercial real estate at the time. Uh, Maybe retail. I mean, everybody goes into retail stores all the time, but my, my passion was that office building. As it turned out, the office that I ended up building was heavily involved in industrial real estate. That was the main focus of the office. So I started looking around and I saw these older successful brokers that had made a really good living and enjoyed what they were doing. So almost serendipitously, I stumbled into industrial real estate uh, without even knowing what it was at the time. Uh, It's a lot more prominent now. We all see like big fulfillment centers or an Amazon building off the highway. It's a lot more familiar now, but back in 2005, I really had no idea what an industrial building was or what it entailed. So that I, I, I stumbled into it, but I'm very glad that I did because it had, it quickly became uh, more than just a job. It became something that I'm just remarkably passionate about. So I, I feel very blessed and grateful that, that I stumbled into something that I wasn't expecting at all. Man. And uh, again, you're showing me how much we have in common because as a kid myself, I was always enamored by skyscrapers, skylines, Mm -hmm. like, man, I remember I wanted to be an architect, but I was like, "Ah, I'm not a great draw. You know, I I can't really draw. (laughs) Uh, But I I continued to be enamored by beautiful skyscrapers all across the world. And to your degree, like what you just described, I mean, that really resonates with me and thinking about your step into that door and obviously recognizing this opportunity through industrial real estate, I think is really powerful. I'm enamored by industrial real estate at this stage in my life and in my career, because it has very similar, you know, risk profile to uh, multifamily, at least in terms of where the, de- the demand is, the, de- the supply is and so forth. And so I'd love to dive in a little bit in terms of your expertise in industrial real estate. And let's talk a little bit about the nuances, because obviously being involved in this sector of industrial real estate in terms of commercial real estate. Tell us a little bit about the nuances and some of the things that you've really learned, maybe from a high level, and we can drill into any of those details from there. Absolutely. And and you're right. There is a very similar profile with multifamily and nothing exemplifies that better than looking over the past 18 months or so at how the economy has gone from the the lows, the valleys, all the way to the peaks. Uh, Industrial and multifamily has been pretty consistent uh, over that time, with the exception of maybe April and May of last year. Both industrial and multifamily have been on a steady incline. So I, I think the one there definitely is overlap. But the one thing I always stress, uh, particularly to new investors, is that industrial real estate can be a lot more complex. Whereas in multifamily, everybody knows what what an apartment building is. Uh, They might not understand the mechanics behind it and how you actually get into the investment metrics. And and that can be a steep learning curve. But everybody at, at the foundational level understands what multifamily is. Where industrial uh, differs is that industrial can be very, very broad. And I like dividing industrial into three subcategories, uh, warehouses, manufacturing, and flex. And I think it's important to differentiate between those three subcategories because they're 
they're very different, not just in how they're they're built and set up, but also on the user profile on who will actually be the ones that that rent it. So if it's good with you, uh, maybe we, I could even just go through those three subcategories in, in Please, a high level detail. That'd be great. So the first one I, th- I think that a lot of people are familiar with right now is, is warehouses. So that's like the big Amazon a fulfillment center or a big distribution center. Uh, I even say that uh, everybody's familiar with warehouses, even if they don't know it, because a Costco or a Home Depot is essentially just a really big warehouse, but it's in a retail location. So they'll have cashiers at the front and and they'll have a lot of merchandise in there. But it's if you look at an average Home Depot or a Costco, they've got 24 foot ceilings like a warehouse is. They have loading doors where product can come in or go out. Uh, concrete floors, racking where all the merchandise is. That's essentially the same as a warehouse for uh, for these big, large distributors. So everybody's somewhat familiar with a warehouse, and that's a very specific type of industrial real estate. And that's the one that's making all the news right now. And, and I'm guessing we'll probably talk about this later as well. But when you hear stories about the industrial market reaching new highs and it's going crazy right now, that's on the warehouse side. And that's a very fair assessment of what's happening is there's there's so much distribution demand right now. There's all this e-commerce, which is driving all this warehouse space and needs to uh, have connection and, and proximity to the customers. So warehouses is going crazy right now. And, and we, we could talk more about that, but that's only one part of the industrial market. And what a lot of people don't recognize, uh, especially new investors, is that there's other categories. The, the other main one is manufacturing. And manufacturing is big business in North America and all around, all around the world. These are the buildings where, where things are made. So one example that I've used before is the Boeing factory in Seattle. It's a 4 million square foot building, and they bring in all the raw materials. They construct uh, their, their airplanes, and then they get them sent out. That's a big scale manufacturing plant. But on the other end, you could have a company that just makes uh, small widgets. Uh, It could be a a company that uh, makes uh, cans for Perrier. Uh, They'd be the ones that take the aluminum and and prepare it and manufacture it and send it out to where it's going to go. And that is a massive section of the industrial market, which people don't appreciate how much uh, that there actually is. And it could also include, you know, oil and gas, which my market is heavy in oil and gas. That's all that the property that's very unique to the manufacturers, but it doesn't necessarily relate to the warehouse distributors. And where I caution people to be very, very sensitive to this fact is that a manufacturing property, which might not be conducive to a warehousing property, you might buy an industrial property thinking the industrial market's skyrocketing. But if it's a manufacturing property in a market that's struggling from a manufacturing standpoint, you might have a property that's incompatible with what you think is growing industrial demand. So that that's why I, I, I've said it before, and it's probably the opposite of what a lot of brokers say to, to investors. But I, I say that industrial real estate should scare new investors. Uh, and, and I say that because if you buy the wrong property, you could run the risk of, of potentially losing a lot more than if you were to buy called a multifamily property. There's always going to be some demand for multifamily, right? You might buy in the wrong neighborhood or you might not get the rents that you expect, but there'll, there'll be some gap where you're at least able to uh, to mitigate your expenses. If you buy a manufacturing property 
thinking that the industrial market's going up, but that property was specifically geared for a certain type of user, you might end up with a property that you struggle to find uh, another tenant or a buyer. So that's that's the manufacturing side. It's it, There is overlap. There are some commonalities between manufacturing and warehousing, but they are distinct. Uh, and then the third category is flex. And flex is kind of all the other industrial properties, which aren't necessarily built for warehousing or manufacturing. And the perfect example of this, which everyone's familiar with, is a car dealership. Uh, a lot of car, car dealerships are, are built in retail locations, but they might be on in industrial zoned land. And if you really look at that building, there's a front part of it, which is the showroom space. And then they've got all the back, which they use for their automotive, for all their repair, uh, any storage of equipment or whatever they have in there. That's typically an industrial building, but it looks like a retail property. So again, that isn't necessarily conducive for manufacturing. It's not necessarily good for warehousing, but it's an industrial property. So those are the three main categories. And, and I probably sound very long-winded explaining that. I hope I didn't lose your audience on this, Tyler. <laughs> uh, but, I, but I hope what, I, what I'm trying to just drill home is that industrial is what people hear. But until you actually drive in, drive down and drill down into that uh, category in more detail, you don't really get the full picture. So that, that's where I just think industrial can be a lot more complex and there's a lot more nuances than, than people might appreciate at first blush. Man, that is so valuable. And I just want to encourage the listener to re-listen to everything that Chad just said there in terms of drilling down and really get, gaining a high level perspective of how you really delineate the three different categories or subcategories of industrial real estate. I think that was so valuable. And, you know, thinking about, hey, industrial real estate should scare new investors, I think perhaps is a is a great comment because of the fact that, look, if you're going to invest in anything, if you're going to put capital to work, you need to be stepping into a situation with your eyes wide open, right? And understand the pitfalls, understand how to mitigate that risk, understand the dynamics of what really is going to make this, this deal successful and what perhaps could be the downfall of that deal. And I think understanding that all real estate is hyper-local is really, uh, you know, the, the catch-all phrase here or the catch-all philosophy that really makes the most sense for you to really truly understand, well, what is, what is true about this particular asset and what type of demand may I have from a user or obviously in terms of how, how successful can my end user be in terms of delivering their product or service uh, through, through this particular asset. So let's talk about that because you touched a little bit on macroeconomics. You, you've obviously touched just briefly on micro or macro, I'm sorry, microeconomics in terms of your market, in terms of what the demand drivers are. But you talked about those three different categories, warehouses, manufacturing, and flex. Could you give us just a high level education in terms of what are those drivers? Because we're in a global environment, right? Obviously, when you think about warehouses, you think about Amazon as the big player in that space. But give us a sense of what's happening from a high level and what's really driving not only values, but really transaction velocity and so forth. Yeah, on the industrial side, and I'll speak generally because I, th I think this one factor does actually drive the majority of it, and that's just consumer demand. So a lot of consumers are requiring more e-commerce. There's just uh, more people shopping online. It's kind of moved away from that 
go to the store and bring it home to order online and have it delivered. And that consumer demand is just requiring a lot of logistical space in that supply chain. Uh, but it's also required a lot of manufacturing. So going back to the early example of the Perrier can, people are just consuming more stuff right now. And, and we're seeing that upward trajectory of people just liking more stuff. Uh, I don't know about you, Tyler, but like every time I finish a room in my house, it seems to get filled very yes. quickly with, with new <laughs> stuff. So my, my family just likes stuff and I'm sure we're not alone. I think people just like like getting stuff. So that's driven the manufacturing side. That's driven the uh, the warehousing side. And then on the flex side, it's, it's driven uh, a car demand. So uh, if car de- demand goes up, then more dealers are looking for more space and that drives indirectly that flex space. So I think having a healthy economy is directly proportionate to the to the demand and ultimately the supply of industrial space. And so long as we're seeing uh, that economic uptick and people are feeling that confidence, we get back to that consumer confidence standpoint, then I think we're going to continue seeing increased demand for industrial real estate, and that's going to lead to increased prices. So talk to me a little bit about the you know, the individual market dynamics that you are involved in, because I think this is illustrative in terms of how you're seeing and how you're advising in your own market so that, you know, folks who are considering entering into the industrial space can really make more appropriate decisions and really get an understanding of what the market dynamics are, where they're located. So give us a sense of what you're looking at in terms of pricing, cap rates, uh, the makeup of the buyer pool for maybe these different subcategories, what type of development you're seeing and so forth. I think that'd be really interesting. Fantastic uh, point to bring up because I I think looking at a specific market uh, is crucially important as opposed to just hearing a soundbite about how industrial real estate is booming. And then you go to your local market and you think that that translates across everything. And to some extent it does like there's, there's major movement in, in the market as a whole, it will translate at some level, but it's not moving in lockstep. There's still going to be differences in each individual market. And my market is a great example of this because we're in a, in a heavy oil and gas uh, market and we've got about 150 million square feet of industrial inventory. So we're, we're, we call it a medium-sized industrial market. By comparison, Chicago has about a billion square feet. So we're you know, 15% of a major industrial market like Chicago, but it's still big enough that it, it registers on the radar. But because we're so tied to oil and gas, we have much more of a manufacturing component to industrial real estate than other markets. And a good example would be like a port city like Los Angeles or New York, uh, where those are predominantly port cities. There, There's a lot of warehousing space in there. Uh, those markets right now are sitting sub 3% vacancy for the market as a whole, because my market is tied more to oil and gas. We're sitting in the six and a half to 7% vacancy rate. So that, that goes to show that it's not moving exactly lockstep with the market as a whole. And because we have so much of that manufacturing side, that goes to my earlier point about differentiating between warehousing and manufacturing. So if you were in my market, as an example, and you hear that industrial is doing really well, well, on the warehousing side, it really is. If we were to split out what the warehouse vacancy rate is from the manufacturing vacancy rate, there is going to be a, a, a variance in there. So I, I think it's it's incumbent on any investor to not just have a thorough understanding of what the industrial market is in those subcategories that I mentioned, but also having a detailed and intimate knowledge on the local market, not, not just on, on vacancy rates as a whole, but what are the vacancy rates 
for the individual subcategory you're looking at, and also for the size. Uh, that, that's another thing that, that gets lost in, in all the market news is they, they might report a vacancy rate of 7%, but that's market as a whole. So that includes 2,000 square foot spots and that includes 2 million square foot spots. So what's the, what's the real vacancy rate for the exact type of property, the exact size in the exact market? And once you can identify that, then I think you can actually start making some really intelligent decisions on how that asset will be projected to perform over a longer period. So, and, and just to clarify for the listeners as well, you're located in Edmonton. And obviously you're talking about some of the driving forces in terms of your local market. So yeah. tell me a little bit, if we were to just switch gears just slightly in this, in this phase of the conversation, thinking about folks who are saying, all right, I understand what you're saying, Chad. I understand we've got to really gain an understanding and perspective truthfully on what's really happening hyper locally in terms of where we want to invest and thinking about industrial real estate. Obviously there's a learning curve that you've described in this conversation to, to a large degree, but if folks are saying, all right, I understand that I want to enter this eyes wide open and I want to capture the opportunity of industrial real estate as an investor, what would you suggest or maybe the first one, two, three steps to really making that happen? The first thing I, I would highly uh, emphasize would be to understand what industrial real estate really is and, and not just assume that it's just a warehouse that's leased to Amazon, uh, but look at the full spectrum of what industrial real estate is all the way down from a $300,000 industrial condominium that's leased to a local company all the way up to uh, we we got to look at the sale that actually just got announced earlier this week when uh, BlackRock is uh, buying a $3.1 billion portfolio from uh, WPT uh, REIT. Like, that's a massive sale, a $3 billion sale. That makes the news and, and people think that that's representative in the industrial market. But the first property that I actually bought was a, was a $320,000 industrial condo. So I, I think people really need to understand what industrial real estate is, what it isn't, uh, but just get a, a firm understanding of how a property is ultimately going to be leased to the tenant. Because I'm a big believer that a property, especially an investment property, is only worth some function of what a tenant is willing to pay for it. So you have to look at it from through the through the lens of a of a company or a tenant that's ultimately going to be paying rent to lease that property. So I think you need to understand what industrial property is. You also need to understand what a tenant needs that property to do. And I think that that's imperative because if you don't understand what a, what a company wants, if your building can't provide it, you might be left with a property that you struggle, struggle to lease. So going through all the different components of a building, I think you need to have a, a firm understanding of, of how ceiling heights vary in different markets and what the tenant profile uh, on ceiling, what the loading is, if, if they want grade loading, dock loading, some combination of that. Uh, if they want to have a certain amount of electrical power going to the building, if they need a certain amount of yard component, and everyone's going to be different and every property is going to suit different profiles of the market different. But you first need to understand all these components, which are important to the tenant profile. And once you get a firm understanding of what industrial real estate is, and you get a firm understanding of what tenants want, then I'll just start looking at the, at the individual metrics. 
So what is the market rate? You know, if you, if you're looking at a property uh, that's called a 20,000 square foot property in the market, that's where you're considering investing in. What are all the comparable properties doing? Like what are, what are the market lease rates? How long are these properties sitting vacant for? How long of a term can you expect? How much of a tenant improvement do you have to offer to a tenant? Are there any limitations in the building that you might have to overcome? Uh, like essentially financially, how much would you have to pay to overcome that property? proper uh, problem or is the problem even fixable and i think once you could do that and it sounds probably a little overwhelming if someone's just considering it for the first time but that goes back to my earlier point having a healthy amount of fear is a good thing because you start looking at all these all these areas as not just potential pitfalls perhaps as opportunities but at the very least you know you're making as educated of a decision as you possibly can for the sole purpose of not losing money and I'm a big believer in not losing money. So I think to do that in industrial real estate, you need to know the entire situation uh, on, on what the property is, what the tenant profile is, what the market is. Once you've done those three things, I think you're in a much better position to, to move forward with whether it's underwriting a property or raising capital to find investors. I wouldn't be doing anything further until I fully understood those three things first. I love that. And I'll take it even a step further. It's like finding an advisor such as yourself, right? Because at the end of the day, obviously you, you feel perhaps a little bit overwhelmed as you are absorbing all of this data and you're planning for all of these contingencies because that healthy level of fear perhaps pushes you in a direction of protecting yourself and capturing that upside and also being able to solve problems. At the end of the day, it's about solving problems, getting creative with an asset and understanding, perhaps even identifying value that perhaps is not been identified uh, thus yet. So I just think that's so valuable. And the reason why I think it was so important for us to go deep in industrial real estate as we've just done. And of course we could have gone, we could continue to go much, much, much deeper because there's so many different nuances. I just think it's important for the listener to really recognize, look, if you're going to become more and more dynamic as a real estate investor, you've really got to go into this eyes wide open and you've really got to surround yourself with people like Chad who can help you understand what are the contingencies that I need to plan for? What have I not considered? How might we be successful or how might we fail in this particular opportunity? So I think that's so valuable. So Chad, one of the things that I wanted to get to with you as well was thinking about, so over the past 16 years, you've been involved in over 500 transactions as a broker, as an investor and so forth. So I'd love to, if you were to distill it down to like maybe the number one toughest transaction, what would that be and why? Is there anything that comes to mind? Well, there's, there's transactions where clients of mine have lost money and those ones are, are tough. And it's tough from the standpoint that you try to do all the right things and you, you go through those steps that I mentioned, and then the economy just uh, uh, doesn't do you any favors. Like I mentioned, we're in an oil and gas market. So with, with oil at one point going to negative $37 a barrel last year, uh, we, we were, uh, we, we've been under downward pressure as, as a market as a whole. So there's guys that bought property in 2012, 2013, thinking there was going to be a, a great market. And then oil prices collapsed and they saw uh, the downward pressure on the price of their, their property. So I, I could speak to many examples of that. I think the, the most painful ones are the guys that were forced to sell. Uh, maybe they had other investments like the stock market that, that didn't do well and they were just facing losses and they, they panic sell might be the wrong term because they were probably just trying to keep 
keep the boat afloat. But the guys that had to sell in like 2017, 2018, those are the guys that crystallized their losses. Uh, so they, if they would have just been able or been in a position to hold it for another couple of years, I think that they're at, their investment would have actually turned a corner and, and have, has done quite well. So they crystallized those losses and were forced to, to leave money on the table for various reasons. Uh, but, but that's, that's painful. That, that sucks when you have to see a guy buy a property and do all the right things and the economy throws a curveball. Uh, but there's also the other side of that is there are investors. I, I'd say the majority of investors held through during that time and they've done exceedingly well, or there was investors that bought at that lull. So they bought it off the guys that were forced to sell and they've made great returns. Uh, I, I think industrial real estate, and, and, and maybe I'll paraphrase this too, because the last thing I want to do is make it seem like industrial real estate is a scary thing and everyone <laughs> should stay away. I think industrial real estate is an amazing investment vehicle. In fact, I've got the majority of my net worth directly invested in industrial real estate myself. I, I love this industry. I'm very passionate about it. I just don't, I want to be transparent with people and say, it's not all just uh, sunshine and rainbows. Like there, there are problems and there are pitfalls that you have to watch out for. And some of those guys were experienced that they experienced that because they had to sell and take a, take an actual loss. But there are investors that have done well through this. If you're buying the right property and you've got a long enough of a time horizon, uh, I kind of look at my investments being, I, I might hold them forever. I, if I'm buying the right property, there, I might hold these things until my, until my children eventually take them over. And, and I think if you're buying with that mind frame that any dip in the market is really just a temporary aberration. I'm a big believer in economic growth and in Canada and the US, I, th I think this is an economic driver of the world. I believe that we're going to continue go, uh, growing, but there's going to be dips like we experienced multiple times. 2009 was a great example. Uh, this past year was a great example. But that trend line, I believe, will continue going forward. Not that I have any crystal ball by <laughs> any means, but my personal philosophy is that trend line is going to continue going forward. And so long as you're buying the right property and you have a strategy to handle any of these these temporary aberrations, I think it's a fantastic uh, investment vehicle. And, and I know that's probably a really roundabout way of answering your question uh, because none specifically come up other than I, than I do have examples of guys that have lost money. And I have examples of guys that bought at that dip and have made a lot of money. So it, it really, timing is, is a tough thing to get through. And if people need to sell a property in a couple of years. I have no idea what's going to happen in, in a year or two, but I'm ultimately confident that in 20 years, it's going to be better than it is today. Hey guys, just a quick word from our sponsor and we'll be right back to the show. This episode of Elevate is brought to you by CF Capital and you know how much I love real estate and how it can be a vehicle towards creating any outcome that you want in your life, which is really why we created CF Capital, a real estate investment firm that focuses on acquiring and operating multifamily assets that provide stable cash flow, capital appreciation, and a margin of safety for our investors, for our partners, and for the people that we serve. Our team leverages its expertise in acquisitions and management to provide investors like you with superior risk-adjusted returns while placing a premium on preserving capital. Our mission is to provide property investment and asset management solutions to help investors maximize their returns by investing in high-value multifamily communities. Our philosophy is that we can elevate communities together through this process. And I want to invite you to go check out cfcapllc.com because we have a free ebook 
That's called The Bottom Line, The 10 Ways to Increase Cash Flow in an Apartment Complex. And I want to tell you that this is a value-packed ebook. So I want to, want to invite you to go check that out right now at cfcapllc.com. I think you're going to get a ton of value just from reading this, whether you apply it to your own business or whether you educate yourself further on what it would look like if you invested with CF Capital. So go check that out at cfcapllc.com. Again, that's cfcapllc.com and enjoy the rest of the show. Yeah. And I just love your passion for the industry because I, I share it in so many different ways. And, and I know that there is so much power in educating yourself and making effective decisions, but also recognizing that you cannot control the market. You cannot control these various different dynamics that are global, they're national, they're regional, they're local. And there's all these different moving parts that are encompassed within that. But understanding that time heals many wounds in real estate, that is a beautiful thing. That's an important distinction that we got to highlight here because yeah, you, you only crystallize those losses if you sell at that moment. And so, you know, how can you hold on? You know, one of the things I've got friends who are in the crypto markets and they say, hodl, hold on for dear life. <laughs> and I think that really resonates with me at, at times in commercial real estate, whether, whatever asset class you are involved in, sometimes you have to hold on for dear life and you have to solve problems. You have to plug holes in the ship so you don't sink. And you've got to really be creative and be resourceful because it's not always going to be smooth sailing, but perhaps that smooth sailing is what's going to make you a stronger sailor. And so I just think that's really valuable. There's always a, there's always a silver lining in every challenge. And at the same time, it comes down to buying right, understanding eyes wide open. What is it that you're getting yourself into and recognizing this is a long-term thing because it's not a get rich quick scheme, especially in industrial real estate. And, and thank you for further illustrating that. But obviously, as I mentioned, you know, being a, a top producer, someone who's done over 500 transactions over the past 16 years, obviously SIOR, CCIM, MBA. I mean, these are some of the highest, most well-respected credentials in commercial real estate and otherwise. But talk to me, what are the attributes of a perennial top performing producer such as yourself, what are those attributes that we can apply further in ourselves and integrate into our own practice, whether we're investors, whether we're service providers or what have you? So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. Excellent topic. I, I think if I were to distill it down to one thing, it is just an unwaveringly, unwavering passion to to want to succeed and and success means different things to different people. So maybe I could delineate that between being a broker and being an investor. Uh, and it's, I think it's easier to talk about on a broker standpoint uh, for an unwavering passion for a broker is to just do whatever is required ethically, of course, do whatever is required to assist your client. So I, I'd like to think that I wake up every morning and I try to figure out what I can do today to help out my clients. Uh, if, if that means making an extra call that, that he didn't want to make, or it's uh, going to, a, uh, to show a property at nine o'clock at night, just because that's the only time that that tenant can get through there. If you have an unwavering passion to want to perform for your client, to do the best possible job for your client, I think there's very few things that can stand in your way. Uh, I think you can learn what you need to learn about this business. You can learn what you need as fiduciary obligations, as an agent, you can learn all that stuff. That is all teachable. I think if you are, if you wake up and you're driven to do whatever you have to do to win, and again, winning can take different forms, but on a brokerage standpoint, it's just helping your client sell or lease a property. If you wake up and you are so driven to make that goal, I don't think there's much that's going to stand in your way. So I, I think that that is the singular 
test of, of someone's potential success. Do you think that's the same for investors as well? Just drive to do whatever it takes to, to succeed and to reach your goal? Or is that, or do you have anything else to say on that? I, I do. Eh? And it goes back to the point about having the conviction of, of what investment that you're making. So if you're an investor and you are driven to know everything you can, and I'll use industrial real estate, uh, that's the topic at hand, but I think this, this uh, pertains to every asset class. If you're an industrial investor and you are driven to know everything you can about the industrial real estate as an asset class, but you also are driven to know all the deals that happen so that you have all the market comps. If you if a tenant moves into the market, you know that they're searching for space or you know about a big deal that just happened and you're driven to know everything you can about that property and you have the conviction that you bought the right property, then you shouldn't have to sell when the market dips. You should say, I believe in this unequivocally, and this is the property that I'm going to hold on. But if you don't have that, as soon as there's a little bit of turmoil, you might just say, I, you know, I don't even, I don't really feel that comfortable about this. Let's just sell that property and move on to something that I know. So I, I do, I, I believe that that drive to just want to, to be the best, uh, whether you ever, whether uh, that comes to fruition or not, whether you actually do become the best, but your drive is that it's a never ending goal to be the best. I don't know many guys that are, that are not going to succeed if that's what they wake up uh, and do every single day. Man, your drive is just palpable because, man, you're just somebody who is not only committed to continuing that education yourself, but you give that to other people, which I just so much appreciate. And, you know, thinking about the designations and the credentials that you have, the commitment that you've shown through your drive is really remarkable. Thinking about Society of Industrial and Office Realtors, thinking about an MBA, thinking about a certified commercial investment member. Talk to me about the role that these different organizations and this education and this commitment and this drive towards continuing your own education. What type of role have each of these played in your own development? I think it's been fundamental to my success. And and I mentioned at the beginning that I dropped out of business school. When I got into real estate and ultimately got into commercial real estate, I quickly learned that there's there's a lot of information that that I need to have. And it's, it's kind of that, that saying, you don't know what you don't know. And I decided very early into my career that I just wanted to learn everything I possibly could. So, and that, that included not only finishing my degree. So I went back to school, uh, part-time, uh, finished my, finished my diploma. Then I finished a degree, got a graduate degree. And then I got, I got my graduate uh, degree for my MBA. And I also got the CCIM and the SIOR all while working in the business. I just, worked away. It was a passion of mine. I really wanted to have that education. So it, it, I think it took 10 years. I think it took 10 years to actually wow. finish my, my MBA, uh, just because I had to, I only had one year of college under my belt. So doing that all part-time, it was, I didn't miss a single course. I did one course every year, or sorry, one course, every semester, spring, summer, winter, every semester, 10 years later, I got an MBA. Uh, but that was, that was part of my game plan is I, I wanted to to have that education because I, th I think not only was it important for me, but it was also important for the people that I was representing that, that they would have comfort in knowing that I'm this dedicated and this passionate to knowing everything that I can so that I can be of service to them. So that, that was pivotal. I, I, I think that that was a, a, a really 
prudent decision looking back and patting myself on the back from deciding to do that uh, uh, a while ago now. Uh, I'm glad that I did it. And, and it's also just reinforced a never ending uh, learning curiosity for me where I am constantly looking for the next thing that I can do to add to my arsenal, uh, add that arrow to the quiver kind of thing uh, so that I can I can benefit myself, but I can also be of more benefit to, to my clients. So it, it, it's been huge. It's been a life-changing decision to, to embark on that as long, as long ago as I did. Okay, Chad, I get it. You're trying to be my best friend now. I get it. You're, you're like, you're, you're selling yourself right now. It's like, we've become best friends in the past five minutes because your, your commitment to learning and growing, it's just, man, it's, it's magnetic. It's exciting. And I know all the listeners who are listening as well, they can really resonate with that because you know, anybody who knows much about just life and business in general, the, the separator really is about that learning and that growing, evolving and expanding through, you know, some of that, sometimes it can be very challenging, especially, you know, slogging away at something for 10 years and committing to something over and over and over. I'm sure many times you're like, oh my gosh, I can't do another class. I seriously have to do another class. I'm, I'm, I'm representing all these people. I'm making investments and I'm doing all these things. But now you get to look back and say, wow, I'm really proud of myself, but it didn't stop there. The journey continues. Talk to me a little bit about personal development and what type of role that continues to play in your continual evolution. Yeah, even to this day, I'm still enrolled in another program at my university uh, on uh uh, uh, applied land use planning. Uh, so I'm still even going through a certificate program on that. So even after I finished the graduate work, I'm still, still doing it. I, I, I think that I, I wanted to do it partly because I wanted to show my, my children that uh, higher education is just really important. Uh, even though I don't necessarily use my MBA as, as a lot of other people would, I'm still very proud that I, that I got it. And I think it shows that you can do a lot of great things if you just take a small step at a time. I, I believe that anybody out there can do one course a semester if they really wanted to. It took me an hour a day on average to, to do that. So that, that it sounds a lot over 10 years, but if we're talking an hour a day. I just got into a very good rhythm and a very good routine of knowing that I'm going to have to devote up to an hour a day to, to do it. And I think everybody can. Everybody can find an hour in their day if they really wanted to. It becomes priorities and, and where, where people want to spend their time. But I, I figured after my kids were in bed and uh, everything was done for the day, I can find an hour if I have to. So I, I just made it a choice. I made it a choice that that was important to me and I wanted to do it. And the remarkable thing, and I, and I think that the, the biggest thing that I've taken away from the MBA is because uh, that was the longest journey uh, doing that program. The biggest thing that I took away is that you can become very, very organized and very efficient with your time if you, if you know that you have to be. So instead of, of, of trying to spend, you know, half an hour uh, doing something that necessarily wasn't productive towards the program, I just became very hyper-focused and efficient so that that time that I spent doing that program was, was just very productive. And I still carry a lot of those things uh, forward to today where I, I'm just intentional and I'm deliberate about time that I spend and where I allocate uh, my time so that it is efficient as possible. So I, I think for anyone out there who was considering taking another course or, or doing a program, I, my recommendation would be just know that it's a journey, but that time is going to go by anyways. When, when I look back on it and, and I just finished my undergrad and I was looking at the MBA and I think it took five years or so. 
I, I was looking at that and being like, this is a long time. This is going to take me a long time. It's a lot of work, costs a lot of money. But I just said that that time's going to go by anyways. This five years is going to go by regardless of whether I'm working on an MBA or whether I'm, I'm watching TV an extra hour a day. So I just said, it's going to go by anyways. I want to do this. I want to have these skills. And I just decided to, to just do it. And I'm very glad that I did. I love just at the end of the day, the, the personal development program that you've chosen is, hey, look, it's an hour a day an hour a day of learning in whatever capacity, whether it's taking a class or so forth. And man, there is a lot to be said about what you just shared with us. So I definitely would encourage the listener just to re-listen to that and consider how this applies to you. The time will go by anyway. So how are you investing in your future self and making perhaps tomorrow even easier than today? Uh, and also expanding through perhaps, you know, sometimes where that may feel like confusing or challenging or compressed on your time. I think there's just so much value in that. But what role has mindset played in your journey? Because I, I would imagine like me, it's been almost the glue in some ways. But for me, it's like, you know, sometimes you get this feeling of overwhelm and, and perhaps you can overcome that through whether it's, you know, just owning your mindset and being the victor rather than the victim. But is there anything that you would say regarding mindset and the importance that it's played along your journey as well? Yeah, two things. I, I, I think having an attitude of just seeing things through is really important uh, because it's easy to quit. There's, there's times when I was doing that MBA and I'd have to work on a paper and uh, my family would wanted to do something to go to a beach or he had friends that wanted to grab a drink. And I, I just had to make those sacrifices, but that, that burning desire to just want to finish it, uh, I, I think is important. And I think that that's, that's actually one great takeaway from, from school is that when you see someone has a degree or an undergraduate degree or a certificate or anything, really, I think what that what that exemplifies is that they were willing to see something through because it's easy to quit. It's easy to quit on anything, but if you've shown a propensity to see things through at school or at work or an investment or whatever it is, I think that becomes a habit. I think you either have a habit of, of finishing things or you have a habit of quitting. And there might be times when, when you have to quit and maybe, maybe there's justifiable reason, but if it's just an excuse, if, if, if I just wanted to quit just because I wanted to go and have a beer on a Friday night, it's a pretty lousy reason in, in, in my mind. So having a, just a, that desire to want to want to finish things off. Uh, and if, if it has to take longer, then it takes longer, but it's just a commitment to see things through. And then the, the other one I think is just, is being very positive. Uh, I mean, we all know people that, that are negative and, and, you know, they, they always have a problem to every solution. Uh, I, I try to be the opposite. I, I just, I want to be as optimistic and, uh, encouraging to other people as well. I, I just, I really want to be happy. I just try to wake up every day and, and be thankful for everything that I have. And, and I have problems. I have things going on in my life that, that suck. And I'm sure everybody does as well, but I still want to just be positive because not only does that make me feel better, but also from the standpoint of being a partner in my office and having other agents that, that, that look to me for help and my clients that I have to serve. I just have found that nobody wants to be around a negative person, uh, especially other successful people. Uh, and in our business dealing with investors or dealing with companies that are leasing space or property owners, these are successful people and successful people do not want to be dragged down by that negativity. So I, those are the two things for me is just, I, I want to finish what I start. I want to, if I can get better every day, somehow some increment, I can get a little bit better and I can be positive about it. It's just, it, it leads to a much happier, uh, which is foremost. I, I, I'd say I chase happiness more than anything else, but it leads to a happy and a successful life.
I love it. And and it just reminds us all that we get to choose to be happy, right? You don't, it doesn't mm-hmm. just happen just automatically. We have to choose that to choose to be positive, choose to be optimistic, choose to make finishing things a habit. My goodness, Chad, this is really phenomenal. I just really appreciate you so much. And, and I'm seriously looking forward to many more years as friends. And, and uh, before we really dive into the next step of our friendship, I want to transition into our rare air questionnaire. It's a rapid fire section of Elevate podcast. It's all about being uncommon. You know, it's uncommon to make finishing things a habit. It's uncommon to choose to be positive, to choose to be happy. And it's uncommon to look at, you know, investing in whatever asset class eyes wide open and saying, look, there are challenges, there are downsides, and maybe I should embrace some of this fear and let that push me towards further education. This is all rare. And so I want to dive in just to a few rapid fire questions for you. If you had to point to two or three of the most impactful books that you've read over the past few years, what would those be and why? Oh, that's an awesome topic. So I read a ton. Like I, on average, I read a book a week and I, it's like the cliche answer would, would be to go back to like some of those foundational books that, uh, that really made an impact on me, like how to win friends and influence people, rich dad, poor dad, think and grow rich. Those were all books I, I read early in, in my professional career. And those had a big influence on me. Uh, now I've, I've, I've transitioned more to just reading really good stories. Uh, uh, there's, there's one uh, red notice a guy named Bill Browder, uh, who uh, th- that's the book that I've probably recommended more than, than any recently. He was uh, he was an investor who uh, went to Russia and became like one of the biggest uh, foreign investors in Russia. And it was, it was really scary. Like some of the things that he, uh, I think it was this lawyer that got assassinated, uh, led to like a whole bunch of, uh, I think it was with the Matiski Majiski. I don't remember the name of it, but it, an act was actually passed all over the world, uh, uh, to, de- to deal with this. So it's a fascinating story. The guy is an awesome storyteller and he's, he's very smart. Uh, so I love reading stories like that now. Uh, and, and those stories really resonate with me. I just try to take something out of each one of those. Uh, but to more specifically answer your question, uh, the one that has probably made the biggest impact for me is, is not a book, but a course. And that'd be the CCM 101 course. Uh, at the time, this was before I went into business school again and got my MBA. I, I did the CCIM 101 course first, and that opened my eyes to, to things that I didn't even fully understand about investment real estate. And that had a very, very profound uh, impact uh, on the trajectory of my career and just how the more that I learn, the more I can help others. Uh, so it might not be applicable to, to everybody, but if you're looking to learn more about investment real estate, uh, whether you're a broker, investor, service provider, that 101 course had a very lasting impact on my career. Yeah, I totally agree. If you're if you want to grow as a real estate investor, whether you're passive, active, whether you're industrial, multifamily, office, residential, even you need to take that class. I mean, CCIM 101. We will put links in the show notes as to where you can find all those books as to where you can enroll with CCIM. We don't get paid for this, but both Chad and myself are very passionate about that organization and the education that you can receive. Just gaining that context is highly, highly important. And I, I could not agree more. So Chad, if you were to point to the biggest way that you elevate your life on a daily basis, what would you say? What would you say about that? 
And, and I apologize. I realize this is supposed to be a rapid round in that last question. <laughs> last question I went on too long. I, I think the, the probably the biggest thing that I do that that's a habit is I, I just I read a lot. Uh, so not just like a book like Red Notice, but I just try and keep on top of all the major market news. So I, there's a few resources that I use, like Globestreet.com is a good one. I, I just try and keep on top of all the, all the news, and then I also try and keep on top of all the things happening in my market. So leases that are getting done or a, a property that sells. I just try and keep on top of a lot of news and data. Uh, and I think that that just keeps my mind fresh, but it also, again, goes back to the earlier point. I can use that information to help other people. That's so good. What's the biggest way that you elevate others around you, Chad? I think uh, the the quick answer to that is I just make myself accessible. Uh, so if if a friend has a question or one of my colleagues has a question, I will I will make sure that I give them time that isn't with me checking my phone or being interrupted by people. I just I try to give uninterrupted, dedicated time so that I'm addressing their questions so that they feel that that I'm engaged in the conversation and trying to just give them the best answer I'm capable of uh, without distractions. Man, I love it. Chad, this is no doubt the first time together on Elevate. I think we're going to have many more times, I hope, uh, together. But man, I look forward to continuing the conversation with you. I look forward to continuing strengthening our friendship, our partnership, hopefully in the future in, in some ways. But I just, it was so fun to really introduce you to Elevate Nation today. But is there any parting thoughts or words of wisdom that you'd like to share with Elevate Nation? Yeah, well, I, I guess I would just say that we're both members of the Mutual Admiration Society because I, <laughs> I am equally as big of a fan of yours. I, I, I've watched a number of, uh, I'm a YouTube guy, so I've watched a, a number of your episodes and, and I've just, I've followed your career path as well. And, and I love what you're doing uh, with your company. I love uh, how you're developing this podcast for Elevate because the commercial real estate community at least for the ones creating valuable content and, and valuable content in the form that you're not trying to sell anything. I'm not trying to sell anything. I just love this industry and want to provide uh, information. And I, and I see that exactly in you as well. So I, I really just applaud you for everything you're doing, the valuable information you're adding to the, to the community. Uh, and, and likewise, I really do look forward to continuing to grow our friendship. All right, man. So I'll send you the 20 bucks right afterwards for, uh, for all the kind words there, but no, in all seriousness, this is so much fun. And uh, the listeners can find you of course, at uh, where we can find you on LinkedIn. We can find you at edmontonindustrial.com. Uh, where else can the listeners find you, Chad? Uh, well, I'm really putting uh, work into growing my YouTube channel. Uh, so if they just search my name uh, or, or search industrial real estate, I don't think there's much for content up on YouTube right now. So should come across my channel and I'd love it if they checked it out. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll put links in the show notes in terms of how you can find Chad, whether it's on YouTube, on Edmonton commercial, or I'm sorry, edmontonindustrial.com and his LinkedIn page and so forth. You definitely want to engage with Chad because what you see is what you get. He's a real deal. And I also want to remind or actually let the listeners know that there's actually a free 30 minute call to discuss any questions investors might have about specific industrial opportunities or the market as a whole. Chad is actually offering that. So all you have to do is just go to edmontonindustrial.com. Is there anywhere else where we can point the listeners, Chad? Uh, you could uh, put my email as well, uh, Griffiths, uh, C-R-E at gmail.com. Uh, that's probably the best way to actually reach out to me. Awesome. Chad, thanks, ago. thanks again for being on the show, my friend, and we will see you soon. Pleasure is all mine, Tyler. Thanks so much, man. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Elevate. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate, review, subscribe, and pay it forward by sharing with a friend. 
Most importantly, take this opportunity to elevate your results by taking immediate action on what you learned. For more, visit elevatepod.com.